Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we ended our discussion last week on death. That's where we went. The idea, and we we were in Luke chapter nine, we went up to, I think about verse 27. We were talking about following Jesus and what that looks like. It looks most like death. Surrender to yourself, putting your flesh to death, telling yourself, no, not my way, his way. That's where we ended around verse 27, and that theme continues where we pick up today in Luke 9, 28. So as we are aware of the theme that's gonna be in Luke chapter nine, this idea of death and surrender and putting ourselves and our own flesh to death and allowing Christ to be raised anew in our, lo- our lives and following him, I want you to pay attention to the structure of the way that Luke tells the story. Many of the things that are in Luke are also found in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, but certain things Luke leaves out. And I want you asking yourself, why did Luke leave that part out when Matthew and Mark included it? Well, the reason why is because he's trying to tell a story. He's communicating something very specific with what he's including and the way he's arranging it. I want that in your mind as we go through today. Because what's gonna happen is you're gonna watch Jesus walk a path towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem means something. It is a historical city, and Jesus is literally going there, but the meaning of the, of the journey he's on and the path and the destination, it's so much more than just a road you're walking on a city that you're going down. And as you're considering all the things that are, are, have meaning that are included in this, history, this historical story, I want you thinking about the relevancy of it with your Christian walk. Because what we're gonna see today is Jesus has set his face towards something very specific. And after that, nothing else matters. There's only one thing that is important when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And his disciples are following him meaning they're walking that same path, and we also are disciples walking that same path. And so what the disciples are learning as they follow Jesus on this path are lessons for us to learn because we're also disciples following Jesus on this path. Amen? Okay, so let's get to it. Let's go to Luke chapter nine. We're gonna start in verse 28. It says, now about Eight days after these sayings, the sayings we just covered last week about death, he took with him Peter and John and James and went on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, and it was Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The Greek word there for departure is exodus. That's important. The exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, were heavy with sleep, 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men who were parting, with, or were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pause there. This is the story of the transfiguration. Luke doesn't use the word transfiguration, most scholars think, is because there was a, um, a common theme um, in the, the, the day with uh, Greek mythology of people being transformed from one thing into another. And Luke is writing to a Gentile audience and he doesn't, he doesn't want his audience thinking that way. So he describes the event without using a familiar word. Luke records this event, Matthew records this event, and Mark records this event. Now in Matthew and Mark, we're told that it was six days after the saying. Luke tells us it's about eight days. Now why the discrepancy? Discrepancy. Well, the word about in Greek is osi, and it can be translated as about or like. And if you have a teenager in the house, or if you've ever talked to a teenager, you're starting to understand. When a teenager says, I'm so hungry, I haven't eaten in like five days. And you say, you just had lunch. <laughs> and they say, I said like. <laughs> it's about. It's like. It's about. Eight days, six days. About eight days after Jesus is teaching about death, he goes up on this mountain to pray with Peter and James and John. And on this mountain, Christ is transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear. So now you have six people up on the top of this mountain. Three of them, we're told, are asleep. And three of them are discussing the second exodus. Why do we say the second exodus? Because I just want you considering for a moment what's actually happening here. What was Moses known for? The Exodus. Bringing Israel, leading them out of bondage. And now Jesus, the better Moses, is standing here on a mountain, transfigured, shining bright white, having a conversation with the guy who did it the first time, and they're talking about how that first time is really only pointing to the second time. And this second time, Jesus isn't gonna lead just a few group of people out of bondage from Egypt. He's gonna lead the entire world out from under the bondage of sin and death. And Elijah is there, the prophet. So three people are sleeping, three people are sitting here talking. This is literally a mountaintop experience. The law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, are sitting here having a conversation with the king. The king that has been talked about for thousands of years in this book. 
Moses is finally seeing with his own eyes. Elijah is standing there seeing with his own eyes and Jesus is talking with both of them about what he's about to accomplish. It's a, it's, it is a significant moment in biblical history. And what does Peter wanna do? What is Peter's response? He grasps the magnitude of this in a way and he responds by saying, man, let's build some tabernacles. Now, if you've been keeping along with our Bible reading plan, that may have sounded a little familiar to you because we just finished Leviticus, Leviticus 23, 34. There was a command that the people of Israel were supposed to remember the Exodus event and wandering in the wilderness with this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It happened on the seventh month, the 15th day. Everyone was supposed to come out from their homes and they were supposed to build a tent out in the wilderness with their family, with their community. And it's a seven day festival where you don't live inside your house. You live in a tent outside and you enjoy each other's company. You, you celebrate, you enjoy the festivities and you're remembering and worshiping and ascribing worth to the God who provided for you and made your salvation possible. And Peter is saying, man, this moment is on par with that moment. How do I, as a Jew, celebrate a momentous occasion? Well, the way that God told us to, to build a tent. And he says, let's build a tabernacle, not just to you, Jesus, but also to Elijah and to Moses. He is essentially saying, I want to ascribe equal value, equal worship to all three of you. Now, what's the problem with that? Because we're told that he said this without knowing what he was saying. So we know that Luke knows that there's an issue, that when he says this, he didn't know what he was really saying. The idea that we would ascribe value and worth to these men, Elijah, Moses, the same value that we would ascribe to Jesus. Why is this an issue? Because the entire Bible is pointing to one man. And that one man isn't Moses, and it's not Elijah, it's not some event, it's not a festival. These events, these stories, all of these people in this book, they are arrows pointing to something greater. And in this moment, the greater has arrived. The greater is here. He's literally standing here in front of these other things that are arrows pointing at him. And Peter misses the moment. And he says, let's ascribe equal worth to all of these things. Now, why is that a story worth Luke including? because this is something that we struggle with today as well. We take good, well-meaning, God things, and we elevate them to the same level of value and worship that we do Jesus. We will do things like treat the attendance of Sunday morning at church as more important and valuable than your own personal private prayer time. You'll spend, you'll, you'll go out of your way to make sure that you show up in the corporate group, but when we scatter, there is no cultivating that relationship. The only time 
We sometimes hear the word of God as when someone else is reading it to us. We don't read it for ourselves. When we look at this and we see Peter's response, we're like, that was kind of dumb, Peter, until we realize that we are Peter. The better has already arrived, and we cannot be found elevating traditions as equal or above Jesus. This is the reason why the Father, at this moment when Peter misspeaks, the Father surrounds the entire group in this heavy cloud of glory and says these words, this is my son, listen to him. No person, no experience, no tradition is greater than Jesus. That's what this moment is about. It's about Peter misreading the value of the moment and placing more value on it than what the moment was trying to reveal to him. And this is what we struggle with as people of God. We think that what happened here just moments ago in worship is the kind of thing that can only happen when you gather on Sunday morning and the team plays all the right songs and everyone's singing at the top of their voice. It's not an emotional moment. What you're experiencing is literally the Spirit of God moving in the midst of his people. That's what, that's what you're feeling, that's what's happening. It isn't yourself, it isn't your emotions, it isn't being caught up in the moment, it is the Spirit of God stirring in the hearts of his people. And that can happen at home or in your car just as well as it can happen here. But if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing Peter does and we will elevate a conference or a specific worship team or a specific church or a moment and we've gotta have that or we can't see Jesus. And the Father's response to that is, if anything comes in contradiction to Christ and his word and your relationship with him, then that thing needs to bow and not Christ. If you come to a place where your tradition or this thing you've gotta have becomes more valuable than Christ, then you surrender that tradition for Christ. If you come to a place where something that you have believed or your feelings are telling you one thing and scripture is telling you something else, listen to Jesus. Let's continue, verse 37. It says, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, a demonic spirit, it seizes him. And suddenly he cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him. It will hardly let him, it will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out but they could not. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. 
and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now this story occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In this story, in all three Gospels, it always follows the transfiguration. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is the transfiguration story, and then it is this story of the man with the, with the young son who is demon-possessed. That's the order in all three books. In all three books, you also find that the father has this child who is demonized, and in all three books, the disciples are inadequate in, in, in being able to cast the demon out. And in all three books, Jesus is frustrated due to their lack of faith. However, in Matthew and in Mark, there is some information that is included that Luke has left out. Luke's version of the story is the shortest version, and it ends with a sentence that the other two books don't include, and that is verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, what is Luke trying to say by leaving some parts out and including a part that did not exist in the other books? Well, in Mark, what is included that is not in Matthew and not in Luke, when Mark tells the story, he blames the faith issue on the father. The father is the one who suffered from faith issues, and he says the famous line, I believe, but help my unbelief. In Matthew, Jesus blames the disciples as the one with the faith issue. So the question we have is if Luke doesn't blame anybody, if Mark blames the, the father, and if Matthew blames the disciples, who's the issue here? If Jesus says, oh, you faithless and twisted generation, who's the one who's faithless? Is it the father or the disciples? The answer is it's both. The father lacks faith because he's struggling to believe God. The kind of prayer a father typically prays, man, my family is on the ropes and, and I can't do anything. Literally, there's nothing I can do to change anything. I can't, I can't fix this situation, I can't make it better, I'm hopeless. Is this something that, that you can do, God? Could you possibly move in this situation? It's not boldly coming to the Father saying, I've got no other choices, but I do have you, so please intervene. And I trust that whatever you're gonna do, it's what I need, it's what my family needs. Please, my son, no, it's a, do you do this? Is this in your wheelhouse? Is this the kind of thing that you're interested in? Do you love me enough? Do you care for your people enough? Would you possibly please? Help my son. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's a faith issue on the father, but it isn't just the father. Matthew tells us that the issue is also from the disciples. Well, what's the disciples' issue with faith? The disciples' issue of faith is exactly one week ago, they were commissioned to go out and heal diseases and cast out demons. You remember that? A week ago, they were doing this, and it was successful. It was working. 
And they did exactly what you and I would do. We would start relying on the routine of how it works and not the God that makes it work. And so what the disciples are doing, fresh off of a week of this being successful, they're trying to apply the same ritualistic approach that worked last time. I'll say this prayer because it worked last time. I'm gonna try and do it this time, and now we don't have any result. Well, there's no result because you're not doing it in faith, you're doing it in tradition. You're trying to do what you saw somebody else do. You're trying to implement some system because you saw it work over here at this church and you desperately want those same results, so you're gonna do it over here at this church. You don't seek the Father and say, God, what do you want? How do you want it? How am I gonna handle this? Like, I need your word, not somebody else's word. I need your word. I need you to speak to me. There, there, there's, there's no faith here. So that's the issue. There's faithlessness on the Father, there's faithlessness on the disciples. The entire situation lacks faith, and that's why Jesus, in all three stories, shares his frustration, you faithless, twisted generation. He's talking to the Father and to the disciples, and he's frustrated because he just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Moses and Elijah about the second exodus. You can imagine his frustration. He's literally up there talking to the law and the prophets personified about the coming exodus. And he comes down at the base of the mountain and the first thing he meets is his disciples who are lacking faith and people who are following who are lacking faith. This moment mirrors the moment of Moses coming down off of the mountain and finding all of Israel worshiping a golden calf. After they just watched the sea split, and swallow up the entire Egyptian army. They're worshiping a golden calf. But what I wanna do is draw your attention to this sentence that exists in Luke, but not in Matthew and Mark, and it's verse 43. It says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. They were astonished at the majesty of God. Now that word in Greek, majesty, is megaliotes. Now I'm telling you that because that word is used somewhere else in the Bible to describe a very significant experience. The people are watching Jesus heal this child and they are blown away at the megaliotes, the magnitude, the majesty of Jesus. And that same word is used by Peter when he described what he saw happen to Jesus at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration in his letter in 1 Peter 1, 16 through 18. Let's go to that. 1 Peter 1, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Second Peter 1, 16 through 18. Oh wait, that's first Peter. It's first Peter. I was right the first time. It was second Peter. You gotta go with your gut, guys. You gotta, don't second guess. I'll just read it from here. (laughs) For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. That's the same word, megaliotes. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is recounting that moment where he was standing on the Mount of Transfiguration and he saw the pure majesty of Jesus being revealed to him. And that's the same word that the people used when they saw Jesus, not in a form of transfiguration, but by healing the boy. Why does Luke include this sentence in his story when this sentence doesn't include everywhere else? Because Luke is arranging the story to make a very specific point, and the point is this. The majesty that exists on those mountaintop holy moments is the same majesty that exists in the valley when your kid is sick. It is the same magnitude. It is the same king. We are so prone to giving ourselves over to these holy moments and putting more significance on those moments than we need to. What Luke wants you to understand is that you don't have to go somewhere holy in order to have an encounter with God. You can have an encounter with God tomorrow morning in your car on, the, on, on your path to church. That's what he's trying to get you to understand. That the same greatness and majesty and magnificence and, and glory present in those unbelievably significant moments that you can track. When you look back on your history as walking with Christ, you're like, I mean, that, was a, that was an important moment. That was a significant moment. Going to that place, having that conversation, that was significant. Luke wants you to understand that that magnitude and that significance doesn't have to rest on just one specific moment. The Spirit of God literally fills you, is with you right now, he's with you everywhere you go, and you can have one of those moments sitting in a doctor's appointment waiting for them to call your name. That's the invitation. And what that truth should do to you is leave you marveled. The idea that your God loves you so much that you don't have to go somewhere to have an encounter with him. He will come down to you, fill you, and give you that majesty, that magnificence, that magnitude of his presence in your everyday life. It should leave you marveled. That's exactly what happened with the disciples. They were left marveled. Let's go to verse 43. Now we kind of read the first half of 43. We're gonna read the second half of 43. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside, by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, excuse me, for he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. 
And John answered, um, Master, now I'm reading all these together because this is the conversation they're having as they're going down the road. John answered, um, Master, we saw some people casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So the disciples are marveling at the majesty of Jesus that just took place. They didn't have the faith to cast out the demon. They were resting on tradition. Peter, his comment about the tabernacles, was a rest on tradition. What we're finding is that these disciples, their default is to go back to what they know and trust in that, not trust in God. That's the core issue. And they're on this path, walking towards Jerusalem. We're gonna find out what that means here in a moment, but they're on this path, walking this destiny. And Jesus, in the middle of them marveling at the majesty of God, gives them a reality check. The reality check is, let these words sink into your ears. I'm going to die. Why is that significant? It's significant because they didn't understand it completely. We're told that God was concealing it from them so they couldn't understand it. But then right after that, we're told that they didn't perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So it was kept from them on purpose, but they didn't seek for understanding. They were afraid to seek for understanding. Now we start to get to the thrust of Luke's chapter. I told you when we started today, this whole chapter is about death. And that's what's starting to happen. The disciples are marveling at this magnificent moment. And if they keep doing this, what they're gonna want is to keep on marveling at this significant moment and wanting to measure every moment after it against this significant moment, like we do. And what Jesus pivots them into in this conversation is that guys, this path we're on, there's gonna be moments of majesty, but I want you to know that this path I'm on, I want you to hear me clearly, let these words sink into your ears. This path we're walking, it's a path of death. We're not looking for high water marks here. We're not building our life in such a way that we're just trying to get to the next awesome, good, great thing. The path we're walking on here is a path of death. And this starts showing itself in the way that Luke is telling the story. What's happening? What's happening here is that Jesus is walking the path to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the destination, but the path itself is also marked with significance. Jerusalem for Jesus is a place of crucifixion. It's gonna be the place where he dies. So when you're walking on this path, this path, the place he's heading towards, the ultimate destination, is a place of death, but the path you're walking on to get to the place of death is also a path of death, a path of surrender. Every step you take towards death is another step in surrendering a part of yourself and letting Christ be magnified and not yourself. That's what's happening. And Luke tells the story in such a way to start bringing to the surface these things that are happening so that you start making the connection. 
The idea that these disciples are following Jesus on a destination to death, and the path is a path of surrender, and what Jesus does is he starts bringing them. This is how Luke is arranging it, so we see it. Jesus is starting to help the disciples understand what this death actually looks like. And it, it starts manifesting itself in these conversations. What do the disciples start talking about? Who's greater? I'm sorry, boys. That's one of the things you're going to have to put to death. You're going to have to surrender and put to death your unbelief, which is what we just talked about. Remember the issue with the the young man who's, uh, the guy whose son was demon-possessed and you couldn't cast him out because of uh, faithlessness? Your unbelief your lack of faith, that's gotta be put to death on this path that we're walking. But it's not just that, it's, it's also your fear, that fear you had in not coming to me because you were afraid you didn't understand and you didn't want your peers to know that you didn't understand, that fear, that's gotta be put to death on this road. While you're following me, you need to leave behind your sense of I don't want people to know that I don't know what I'm talking about. Here's, here, Everyone knows you, know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Everybody, we all know it. We're all in on the joke. And the reason why we're all in joke is because none of us know what we're talking about. The moment you start learning things, the first thing that you learn is how much you didn't know. And the faster you can embrace that and be okay with that, the less pride you're gonna operate with in your life. That's, that's what's got to die on this path. That's the road. Every pebble you step on on this road while you're following Jesus, it drives itself into your heel and it tells you this, 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 this failure that you have, this, this desire to want to look better in other people's minds, the, 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 the passion you have to, to hide your mistakes, all that's got to die. This desire you have inside it to, to point out others' failures to make yourself look better, that's got to die. This, this sense of, of, of trying to um, compete against other people to restrict their access to stuff you have so they can't have it, that's got to die. This gatekeeping sense that you've got things figured out, but they don't, and you're going to lord it over them so that they've got to come to you because you're the expert, that's got to die. The sense of greatness and majesty has got to die because his megaliotes, his majesty is far greater than yours. And we're not here for your majesty, we're here for his majesty. That's what's gotta die. And this theme, the idea, and I want you to picture this because in the, I want you to picture Christ on this road, walking towards Jerusalem, knowing what's at the end of this road and still walking faithfully, and every level of surrender it takes in his physical body to follow that plan. We see it in the garden. He's literally, the night he's about to be arrested, he's, 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 wee, he's got blood, like the uh, sweat is pouring from him like blood, and he's praying, God, take this cup away from me, but not my will, yours be done. I don't want my will. If, if it was up to me, oh, I don't want to go through this pain, but not my will, yours be done. Every step that Christ is taking, every step the disciples are taking on this path is a, path, is, is a step of surrender to put your flesh to death. And that theme is reinforced one more time in the final verses here. Let's go to verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him 
who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. His face was set. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, I know you just saw, you were, you were talking to Elijah. I know Elijah's deal. His whole thing is calling fire out of heaven and consuming people who don't follow him. And so, I mean, do you, I'll, I'm gladly, I will do it. This village, they don't want part of you. Well, we don't want any of you. Fire. You want that? Please say yes, Jesus. Verse 55, he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Isn't this interesting, the way that Luke arranges this? These aren't independent stories that are not connected. These are conversations you would have with a friend while you're walking down the road. When you're talking about the fact that your buddy was praying for this one guy and the demon didn't come out, a natural conversation that would stew out of that, well, I know it didn't work because I'm greater than you, I'm better than you. If I was there, if I was not up on the transformation watching this all, I, did I tell you that I saw Moses and Elijah? If I wasn't there watching Moses and Elijah, I, 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 I probably could have done it. I probably could have cast a demon out, wouldn't have been an issue, I wouldn't have had to bother Jesus. This conversation of greatness, this idea, and then that leads to, oh, by the way, while we're talking about casting demons out, um, Jesus, I saw a guy who was trying to cast a demon out, he's not one of us. What do you want to do about that? And speaking of people who are not one of us and don't want us, can we just start calling fire out of heaven on people who don't like us and don't want us around? All of these conversations are flowing together, not meant to be read separate. And now we get to a point where the disciples are having conversations based off of the fact that, oh, we just passed a village that didn't want you. Well, guess what? I'm going to make sure that everyone in the group knows, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I won't be like that Samaritan village that doesn't want you, I want you, ah, I'm with you everywhere, I'm always with you. Okay, Peter, it was probably Peter. (laughs) Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have the air, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first, please let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back, and, and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And these are all really harsh sayings. Like, come on, man, you let the guy go bury his dad? Go say goodbye to people? These are pretty common customs. In fact, a lot of these are connected to stories of Elijah that we'll read when we get into 1 and 2 Kings later this year. The idea that Elijah comes up and calls Elisha, and Elisha says, yeah, I will be with you in a minute. Let me just say bye to my family. And Elijah's like, yeah, you go say bye to your family. That's fine. The implication here being that what Jesus is asking is a greater following than anything that has come before. This isn't you're just going to go follow a prophet around the countryside and watch him rain fire down on cities. No, you're surrendering and giving up your whole entire life. The path I want you to follow me on, this road filled with rocks on the way to Jerusalem. See, I have set my face to Jerusalem and that city is a city of death and this road is a road of death and I want you to follow me on it. 
That phrase, he set his face to Jerusalem, is the same phrase that Luke uses when he tells Paul's story in Acts when Paul says, I set my face to Rome. There comes a moment in the lives of disciples, followers of Jesus, where they have decided that they fix their eyes on something that is infinitely more valuable than anything else in their life. That, that getting to the place of death and surrender is more important than anything else in life. That for Paul, getting to the capital city of essentially the entire world and getting the gospel message there is more important than everything. It's more important than any sense of revenge. It's more important than worrying about what home you live in. It's more important than trying to make people happy and keep up appearances. It's more important than a sense of loyalty to these corrupt earthly systems that we feel like we have to. And most of all, it's more important than looking back on your life. Because every time you look back, the path you're on starts wandering. Luke wants us to see something. I want you to see something today. And it is the story of Jesus walking the road of death to get to the ultimate destination of crucifixion. That road that he walked is still available to you today. It is a narrow path. And most people ignore it. Most people don't want to walk the path of death and surrender. But I'm telling you today that that path is the, wor- that, that path is the only path worth traveling. There is another path. There is a wide path that most of the world travels down. That it is not marked by death, it's marked by joy. It's marked by fleshly desires. It's marked by not telling yourself no, only telling yourself yes. It's marked by getting more and more and more at the expense of everyone around you. It's marked by only telling your story and never listening to somebody else's. It's marked by, um, as you climb the corporate ladder, putting your feet on anybody underneath you. It's, it's literally a path that is as wide as you can imagine, and anything on that path goes. Your feelings are all welcome. Your emotions are all welcome. The only thing that is not welcome on that path is truth. God's word is the only thing not welcome on that path. So I want you to just consider that path and then shift your eyes to this other very narrow path that is filled with surrender. This path is the path marked by death. The the end destination is death and then resurrection. It's a narrow path, but it is a worthy path. It is the path that our king walked and it is the road that we must also walk. The road of surrender and death. But here's the good news and I'll leave you with this. That death, or excuse me, that path that's marked by death, you will find surrender and death everywhere on that path, but it's not the only thing you'll fall on that, find on that path. Yes, there is a healthy amount of you not getting your way and surrendering that for his way. There is death, but the other thing that exists on that path beyond death is majesty, his glory his greatness. 
What's on that path is a transformed life. And here's the offer. If you've frankly had enough of this world and yourself, then lace up those boots and start walking down this narrow path because what you're gonna find is a magnitude of his presence that you did not previously know was possible. But it only, the, the resurrection power, the transformation that you're looking for, the changed life that you want so badly that you've been paying other people for, that you've been giving yourself over to this other path that promises but never delivers, this changed life comes one way, and that is surrender, getting low, making yourself small, and making him big. Fixing your eyes on the king, putting your flesh to death, and saying, Lord, I want your way and not my way. That's the path, amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.